recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia.org. This is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 23rd, 2013. Tonight we will, we will be presenting Part 8 of Pragmatic Genesis, explaining to C-Line. I'm spending, already I'm spending about twice as many segments as I thought we would on this series, but that's okay. It, it's, um, I, I think I'll try to cover all the major and, and important points that we need to understand Genesis from a biblical perspective, which means through the words of Christ and the apostles, because, as we repeated here often, and as Christ himself has told us, he came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. We need to understand the history of Old Testament Israel and the covenants in order to understand the New Testament. We need to understand the words of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament in order to understand the Old. They go hand in hand. There's no such thing as a New Testament Christian. They're just idiots. That's it. Once again, I have Sword Brethren here with me, and we're going to um, we're going to discuss in brief Genesis chapter five again tonight, and a greater length Genesis chapter six. Hello, Brian. Hello. How are you tonight? Okay. Greetings. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, Hello. the God of Israel. How are we doing? Oh, I'm fine. Do you have any I'm opening very... comments, any reflections on the last seven programs, and, and any um, anything else to add? Well, I think we've pretty well sunk the idea that Satan, or the, the snake, you know, the evangelical mainstream churchianity idea, the woman has a physical, literal seed, that's clear, but the serpent, he only has a spiritual seed, and those are just people who decide to be mean. And that's crazy, <laughs> right? If the seed of the literal, if the seed of the woman is literal, the seed of the serpent also has to be literal. The, well, the, um, the, we we have a, a whole New Testament full of serpents and vipers. Those people are identified by the apostles and by Christ at, as Kenites and Canaanites and Edomites, and, and they're serpents and vipers, and and they're the seed of the serpent, and collectively. I mean, there's more to the picture because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had many branches by the time Adam was put in the garden. It was a tree, right? So there's more to the picture. However, that they are the seed of the serpent. They are collectively Satan. Right. Well, you know, the evangelicals, they seem to look at the Bible through a universalist, multicultural lens. So anything that would portray race as important... They have to spiritualize it away. So the woman has a literal seed, the serpent has a spiritual seed. They get to, you know, the covenant, oh, it's a spiritual covenant. People can be spiritually grafted in. and It's basically a buffet religion. Some things are taken literally. Other things, oh, that's just an allegory. That's just a metaphor. We, um, we're out from under the law, but the Ten Commandments still apply, but all the rest of the law is gone. It's just picking and choosing. Well, well right from the beginning, right from the beginning, Yahweh God insists that he is the author of race, and, and that racism is love. Racism is love for God's original creation, because he created created the, that creation kind after kind, an admonition which he consistently repeated, something that was um, 
that, that was basically pounded into the head of Adam, and, and he still fell from grace in, in what is clearly um, a, a series of parabolic euphemisms for Genesis chapter 3 are, is a series of parabolic euphemisms for a sexual race-mixing episode. Now, now um, that caused Adam's fall from, from, from the favor of God and set the ball rolling for history as we know it. If God's word and God's natural creation are not in harmony with one another, then we may as well throw our Bibles in the garbage. If our Bibles aren't telling us what's going on in the world, we may as well throw them in the trash. They're worth nothing. The truth of the matter is that God's word and God's creation are indeed in harmony and and there are there is a Satan what which is basically that the corruption of Yahweh's creation and, and the, the the beings that perpetrated that they collectively are Satan and, and anyone who lends to that corruption or who becomes a part of it in, in repeating the sin of our first parents what well, well that that they perpetuate they help to perpetuate Satan and set themselves in opposition to God whether they're doing it meaningly or not it, it's or, or out of ignorance it doesn't matter right. if, you, if you race mix you you become a Satan if, if, if you fornicate and, and have bastard children those children can never be reconciled to God that they're bastards they are collectively part of that co collective Satan as the Apostle John draws the lines in 1 John chapter 4 and, and explains that there's people born of God and there's people born of the world. And, well, and remember, if you're born of the world, you're not created by God. You're a bastard. Remember in Matthew 7, Jesus says that he will say unto them, I never knew you. He's not going to say, I knew you, but then you fell away. Yeah, right. Away. I knew you, and then you pissed me off, so beat it. Now, no, that's not what he's saying is right. He said, I never knew you. I know not from whence you come. If you're not part of God's creation, if you're a bastard, Christ knows not from whence you come because he didn't create you. You're not part of his ordained creation. Every plant my heavenly father did not plant. I think we have discussed the first four chapters of Genesis so that for the most part, I pray, a proper view of what we may consider to be two-seed-line theology, but which I personally would consider to be simply sound Christian theology in general, has been exposited sufficiently, I pray. Right. Well, it's clear anybody who studies history outside of, say, a public education system or outside of college, anybody who studies history on their own at any depth, they're going to discover that there is indeed a seed war being waged, and right now it seems we're on the losing end of this multi-generational seed struggle. Well, uh, we well, know that's... the final act in the book. We know how it all plays out, but right now we're, we're really getting clobbered because we don't recognize the serpent has seed. That's really, when I sat and, con when I first heard the 2C line message in October of 1997 and, and sat and considered it and, and read the Bible for the first time, and, and considered the two seed line message for many months, and, and it was the it, it it made perfect sense to me because of what I knew about history before I found the two seed line message. It made perfect sense to me because that there are races of people and and 
everybody wants to point at the Jews, but they're really only one race of people, and, and they're not even a race. I understand all that. They're a, they're a bastard breed. But if you pass the same polluted genetics down from generation to generation, that, that really is a race. And, and, and they're only one, and there are many others that are constantly and, and consistently all throughout history in opposition to God. And and two seed line made perfect sense to me, and and it, it's that that's why I I came to it so quickly when I found Israel identity or when Christian identity found me. Right, and I'd like a, to read just a few brief quotes from some Jewish authors who apparently they understand there's a war going on. We Jews, we are the destroyers, and will remain the destroyers. Nothing you can do will meet our demands and needs. We will forever destroy because we want a world of our own. That's in You Gentiles by Jewish author Maurice Samuel, page 155. We Jews regard our race as superior to all humanity and look forward not to its ultimate union with other races, but to its triumph over them. Goldwyn Smith, Jewish professor of modern history at Oxford University, spoken in October 1981. Well, well, you know, no, nobody puts it better than, than um, Paul of Tarsus in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and, and mainstream Christianity still doesn't get it. They think he's talking about some coming future Antichrist, but he was talking in the present tense when he said that Satan was sitting in the temple of God pretending to be God. Look at who was in a temple of God? Who was the high priest when Paul of Tarsus read that? Who had all the positions in 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 the um, in the temple wrapped up and under their control when Paul of Tarsus said that? Ananus and Caiaphas and the five sons of each of those men had served, according to Josephus, the, in the high priesthood. So that's twelve. That's 12 high priest tenures in a period of about 30 years, and, and I exposited this well, when I presented Acts chapter 5 a couple of months ago. 12 Sadducees who were Edomites. They were Edomites. Well, well it, that can be established because even the apostles say in Acts chapter 5 that they distinguish the race of the high priests from their own race, and, and very clearly in the text of Luke. And, and they, they were Sadducees, they were Edomites, and, and they had the high priest wrapped, priesthood wrapped up for 18 years. They were sitting in the temple of God, pretending to be God. They are Satan. And all, and, and all, all the quotes from all the Jews down through history, what, what we have is we have Satan, and, and their own words prove it over and over and over again. We have Satan pretending to be the people of God in the world. And, and and they also pretend to be God himself because they pretend that their words in their Talmud bear more weight than the word of God. And he's speaking in the present, though. He says that... Yes, Paul of Tarsus is speaking God, in, the in the temple, showing himself that he is God. That, that's all in the present tense. He's talking about the Edomite Jew. Right, and he said, too, that who both killed the Lord Jesus... And the prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Absolutely. He's talking about the Edomite Jew. And, and he proves that a couple of years later when he writes his epistle to the Romans. And, and 
What was it? His, his comparison of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9. You, you tell me if this quote doesn't reveal someone who's contrary to all men. On February 17, 1950, testifying before the U.S. Senate, Paul Warburg said, We will have a world government whether you like it or not. The only question is whether that government will be achieved by conquest or consent. That's a man who's contrary to the entire world. He's contrary to all men. Well, well right, of, of course. The race of Cain is listed in Genesis chapter 4, and these are excluded, excluded from the book of the generations of Adam, which begins in Genesis chapter 5. We shall discuss the race of Cain once again, where they appear in Genesis chapter 15. We'll actually get to some of that tonight. Where they appear with, in Genesis chapter 15, along with the Canaanites, the Rephaim, and the other accursed peoples, who are collectively the seed of the serpent, as we learn from the New Testament, which I would quantify. I would quantify the seed of, of the serpent as both the descendants of Cain, directly, and all of the other branches on the wider tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of the non-Adamic peoples of the world whose origination is not from God. At the end of Genesis chapter 4, and, and that's why we have the, the choices in eschatology that we have over and over and over and over again. Every time the end time is spoken of, only the children of Adam are left standing. Only the children of Israel are left standing, right through to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. At the end of Genesis chapter 4, we see that Cain slew Abel. Seth was born as a replacement for Abel, and both Cain and Seth began to have descendants. Yet only Seth's descendants qualified to be counted in the book of the generations of Adam. And we've already established it can't be because Cain was just a nasty person who murdered Abel, because there are plenty of wicked kings and other wicked men listed in the family tree of Jesus. Well, well, right, and some of them slew a hell of a lot more white Adamic men than Cain did. Uh, I mean, that that's just the way it is. And, and some of those men were the most horrible men in, in, in ancient history. The Bible story tells it over and over again. I'd like to, to um, discuss the first part of Genesis chapter 5 in relation to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to keep driving this point home because it's very important. And this point re revolves around recapitulation. The King James, at the end of, um, at the end of Genesis chapter 4, we see that um, Adam knew his wife again. And she bare a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And then Genesis chapter 5 comes along and it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day, in the day that God created man. Well, well that was a long time ago. I, I mean, if we're, we're talking about the time of Seth here, in the day God created man is back in Genesis chapter 1, right? And not, not to sidetrack, but in a way, it's largely Eve's fault that Abel was murdered. Because if she hadn't given birth to that horrible bastard Cain, Cain wouldn't have been around to murder her pure well, son. Well, that's the result of our sin, right? I, I mean, all of right. these damn Jews today exist 
and all of these Negroes and a lot of these other people exist because we accept them. Yet, you know, that's the point of the 86th Psalm. God stands in the congregation of the gods and asks, how long, and I'm paraphrasing, how long will you continue to accept the ungodly? And because we accept the other races, they're constantly perpetuated. Because we accepted the Jews into Europe, now we're overrun with Jews. And now, because we've accepted Jews, we're overrun with all the other branches of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're overrun with all the other races. Right, and we see this again and again, though, in, in our lands where somebody, maybe they'll have a white kid by, you know, um, one man, and then they'll go off and become a race mixer, and their bastard child will end up killing the white child. All the time, the bastard, as I quoted from, I think it was Euripides or Aeschylus or one of those tragic poets a couple of weeks ago, and it's an old adage, I think it's in Aeschylus, right, that the um, the bastard is always the enemy to the true born, and, and it's an old Greek adage, it was in the tragic poets, and, and it's true all throughout history. And my understanding is they're not referring to a bastard, meaning, oh, their mother and father didn't have a marriage license when, they, when the child was conceived. That's not a well, bastard. Well, of course, not in the eyes of God. God doesn't care about state-issued marriage licenses. He, he cares none of, none of, for none of that. You, 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 you sleep with a woman, you're married to her, and, and if you have a child with, him, with, with that woman and he's a white child, then he's not a bastard. And, and we see that over and over again. I, I mean, David... David sinned horribly when, when he sent Uriah the Hittite into battle, knowing that he'd get killed, and, and took his wife. But even though he took that wife and he was punished for it, Solomon was the result of that union, and Solomon became king and, and, and was loved by God and until he too screwed up. But he, he, was, he was a white Israelite and, and the king of Israel and, and the ancestor of Christ. He's not a bastard. The Catholic Church might think so, but but God doesn't. Well, the Catholic Church would have you believe that a white man and a white woman who build a cabin in the mountains and have a child together, since they didn't have their um, ceremony officiated by a priest and they didn't have a marriage license, that child is a bastard. Well, well right, but, but they, they do that to per they, they they make those demands to perpetuate their authority and and and, and um, pressure you into caving into their priestly authority so that they become your god right Let, let's move on with with genesis i, I want to get this this um i want to explain this recapitulation all right in genesis chapter 5 verse 1 this is the book of the generations of adam and the day that god created man that well well that's a repeat of language from genesis chapter 1 right and the adam here is just adam it's not ha adam it's not f ha adam it's just adam just the way we see it in genesis 1:26 there's only one adam in the bible in the likeness of god genesis 1:26 he made him Male and female, Genesis 1.27, he created them and blessed them and called their name Adam. There's only one Adam. If you think there's more than one Adam, you're just a fool. And called their name Adam when they were created. One race of people named Adam. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Seth was born at the end of Genesis chapter 4, was he not? Yeah. So we have two Seths, or we have one Adam? Or we have two accounts of one Seth. 
And if we have two accounts of one Seth, we have two accounts of one Adam in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and Genesis 2, 7. It's that simple. Or we have three Adams and two Seths. I want to hammer that home. I can't let that go because there are so many fools that try to squeeze niggers into the Bible and, and all kinds of squat monsters and ungodly creatures into the Bible as if God created them. And they try to do that by creating different, create by, by separating unrighteously different creations of Adam. And it's all the same Adam. And the language here proves it beyond all doubt. And anybody that thinks differently is basically disputing with, with not only with common sense, but with the word of God, is violating all, all, um, all grammatical rule, every grammatical rule imaginable. It, it's incredible the people that insist that there's more than one creation of Adam. I, I want to, um, to show several examples of recapitulation in scripture. We have Genesis 1.26 and 1.27, and, and that's a proposal to create a man, and then it's the creation of man in Genesis 1.27, the creation of Adam. And then we have the creation of the same Adam, and that's, they're both Etha Adam, right? In Genesis 2.7, what we have is we have a general over, overview, we have a general account of the creation, which really doesn't end until Genesis 2.3 when God rests. And the pinnacle of that account of creation is the, cre uh, is the creation of the Adamic man in 126 and 127. Now, when we get to Genesis 2-4, the heavens and the earths are created again, right? Or, or is that a recapitulation of the creation of the heaven and earth in Genesis chapter 1? Well, of right, course well, it is. What we have is we, we, we start with that. That's mentioned, and then we have the creation of Adam expounded on in much greater detail than it is in Genesis 1.26 and 1.27. And, and the Genesis 2.4 account and forward, I call that the second scroll of Genesis, that takes the creation of man from Genesis 1 and it builds on it and carries the, the story further through the very earliest history of our first parents, right? Now we have that story at the end of Genesis chapter 4, that's where it ends, right? I call that the second scroll of Genesis, right? That ends with the birth of Seth. Now we have a whole new book. The third scroll of Genesis is what I, I, I would call this. This third scroll of Genesis repeats the birth of Seth, just like Genesis 2-7 repeated the creation of Adam. So we have a recapitulation from Genesis chapter 1 at the beginning of Genesis 2. We're starting a new facet of, of, of this early history of our race, and we have a recapitulation of the things that happened in Genesis 1. Then we get to Genesis 5, and we have a recapitulation of the end of Genesis 4. Because this is a different scroll. Because Genesis 2-4 to the end of Genesis chapter 4 are a different scroll than Genesis chapter 1 through verse 3 in Genesis 2, where God rested. Those seven days, that's one scroll, the seven days of creation. Genesis 2-4 through the end of Genesis 4, that's another scroll. Now, we have the third book of Genesis, or the third scroll. This is the book of the generations of Adam, and it starts with the birth of Seth, and it picks up and builds on that just the same exact pattern that we saw 
from in the transition from Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven to Genesis two seven, we see the same pattern with Seth that we did with Adam earlier in the account, where his birth is mentioned at the end of one story, at the end of one book, and then at the beginning of another it's mentioned again. Otherwise we have two Seths. And we don't have two Seths, we only have one Seth. It's ludicrous to think we have two Seths or two Adams. It's simply picking up from where the previous account left off, and it's going to build on it. And we have that one more time in Genesis, and that one more time is the transition from Genesis 10 to Genesis 11. We had the same idea, the same pattern of recapitulation as we leave one story and enter into another one. I'm going to read the end of the last verse of Genesis chapter 10. These are the families of Noah after their generations in in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And then we had the beginning of chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And they were all on the plain of Shinar, and they built the Tower of Babel. And then they were divided again. So were they divided twice? Did, did, did God lie in Genesis chapter 10? And, and, and he, added, he didn't divide them good enough or something? He had to divide them again in, in, um, in, in Genesis 11.9, where it says that God scattered them abroad over all the face of the earth? No, we have a recapitulation where Genesis 10 lists all the descendants of Noah and says this is how the the nations were divided. Well, Well, now Genesis 11 picks up on that story and builds on it and gives us a fuller account, the same exact way that Genesis 2-7 picks up on the creation of Adam from Genesis from the end of Genesis 1 and builds on it and gives us a fuller account. The same exact way that Genesis 5-1 picks up on the birth of Seth, which is first mentioned at the end of Genesis 4, and builds on it and gives us a fuller account. It's a pattern of recapitulation from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, from Genesis 4 to Genesis 5, from Genesis 10 to Genesis 11. That's done because in the ancient world, this wasn't one book. It was several different scrolls. And each one was picking up where the prior book left off. Does that make sense? Right, and all I wanted to say is, I think I pointed it out earlier, just a little example. If we're standing in a kitchen and I say, let us bake a loaf of bread, and then we go off and we bake the bread and we write an account of that, that doesn't mean we bake two loaves of bread. Oh, here's where Brian says, let us bake a loaf of bread. That means they baked a loaf of bread, and here's where it says they baked a, a loaf of bread. They must have baked two. Well, well, right, and that's right where Genesis one twenty six and one twenty seven go because Genesis one, uh, all these fools say that Adam, it's Adam in Genesis one twenty six, and it's Eth Ha Adam in Genesis one twenty seven. Well, well, they try to use that to say that two different races were created. That's just crazy. Genesis one twenty six is not a creation; it's a proposal. Let us make man in our image, and, and then the response to that proposal in Genesis. 127 and or therefore or so it's a response that's why it begins with that conjunction it's it's a response to what was what what was um 
what what was proposed in Genesis one twenty six, it's a response to the proposal of the creation of man, and man is created. So so all, all these fools who who try to insist that there are different atoms, they represent different races. Well, well, God's not the author of confusion. There's one race of Adamic man. Genesis five one ties that all together. You cannot. I don't care how how, how much many and and we proved this beyond doubt in the first segment of this presentation in part one that from the grammar that there's only one Adamic race there's only one Adam period that the the, the people that think that Etha Adam and Ha Adam and Adam are all different they're just sophists and they're not accounting for the many other grammatical constructions like. Al Ha Adam and Lamed Vav Adam and and all of the other things that we pointed out in in scripture. That they're only grammatical constructions. That that they mean things to grammar, but it's still the same Adam in every single occurrence. So so that's recapitulation. The Bible recapitulates itself from Genesis two back from 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 Genesis one to two and from Genesis four to five and from Genesis ten to eleven, it recapitulates itself because at one time these were different scrolls. They were concatenated, they were concatenated into books by later scribes. Once books were developed, once vellum and and, and parchment and things like that were developed. Do you have anything else to say about Genesis five? We 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 said enough, I think, um, last week using the um, the patriarchs and and the, the the comments that the apostles made about the patriarchs, Noah being the eighth preacher of righteousness, Enoch being the seventh from Adam, to demonstrate as part of our our nine points that Cain was not Adam's son to to demonstrate that um Cain was excluded I, I don't think we have to dwell too much on that in in a two seed line series right I just want to point out there are a lot of evangelicals out there that spend an awful lot of time they go through Genesis and they add up all the begats and how long people lived and they try and conclude you know the most common one is that the world you know creation began and I think they say October 4004 B.C., a lot of them even say 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and they put all this energy into trying to determine when the creation began, but they come to something like the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and they just explain it away with a flippant, oh, that's a spiritual seed. I mean, who do they think they are? They're going to spend years trying to pinpoint when the, when the creation of the earth began as though it changes anything, but they just dismiss you know, out of hand, the idea of the serpent having a physical seed. Oh, it's just a spiritual seed. Let's move along. Let's get off to something important. Let's see. Um, let's debate what time zone the creation began. Well, well, yeah, right. That's right. Of course, it it it's um, it it shows a complete unwillingness. I I don't know when when it's instilled in them. It it might be as children in in grade school. I don't I don't know. It's been going on for for a hundred years now. It, it's a complete unwillingness to face the racial realities of, of the Bible or, or to even discern that Yahweh God is the author of race and, and, and the violations of, of his creation will never, ever be accepted. And, and they don't want to um, think of race as a biblical construct no matter how many times it's mentioned 
and and and, and race is, it is the singular topic in scripture is race from end to end from 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 the kind after kind of genesis 1 to the 12 tribes of revelation of of revelation 21 it, it's race all the way through the book and if it wasn't race there would be absolutely no reason for for both Christ and the apostles to reckon the children of Israel by tribes well these individuals these evangelicals these missionary types they all, they always believe they have a duty to preach the word to the pygmies in the Congo who haven't heard the gospel and Jesus can't come back until everyone everywhere has heard the word well, why did he order all of his apostles to go into Europe? Why didn't he say to some of them, okay, you two get on a boat and sail east until you come to a land where people are yellow and, you know, um, squint-eyed, and you two here um, need the journey through the Sahara and continue on until you come to the jungles and you're going to minister to the pygmies and the hottentots, and you guys here, you need to just keep going west until you land in a new world where everyone is short and has red skin. The Greeks, knew about, the, the Greeks knew about the pygmies too, by the way. The Greeks wrote about the pygmies. The, the, the pygmies are mentioned all the way back to Hesiod in the 7th century B.C. Imagine that. It, it wasn't like they were ignorant of pygmies. But there sure as hell isn't any epistle of Paul to the pygmies. Okay, a quote from Tertullian. Tertullian was the... Um, he was a bishop in, in, in Roman Africa. I, I'd like to say, I believe it was Carthage, Roman Carthage. Um, he wrote about, he was in, in his prime and, and wrote his books probably from about 180 AD, I think. That, that's off the top of my head. Tertullian did understand race. And he wrote in his apology in chapter 22, We are instructed, moreover, by our sacred books how from certain angels who fell of their own free will there sprang a more wicked demon brood condemned of god along with the authors of their race and that chief we have referred to now now tertullian's view of of, of this was 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 a little yet you know that the the, the his view of these angels and, and, and Satan, the chief of the angels, it, it was a little proto-Catholic, but he understood that there was a demon brood of men living at his time who were condemned by God. He understood that from Scripture. At least he understood that much, that there was indeed a seed of the serpent, that there was a race of men who, who were... Um, who were wicked by, by, by their genetics. And, and that's a hell of a lot more than most mainstream theologians understand today. Would you like to read Genesis 6? All right. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And Yahweh said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, 
and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became, became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And, and, and let's, converse, okay, let's stop there. I just wanted to say, I've conversed with some evangelicals, and they believe that the sons of God were just men, and the daughters of men were clearly just daughters of men. And I, I asked them, well, why would there be a point of differentiation, and why not just write, the sons of men came in unto the daughters of men? Why would there be a differentiation if sons of God came in unto the daughters of men? There's clearly a distinction between who, who the women are and who the men are. Well, well and, it, and it's clearly wrong that it happened. The, the, um, I wrote a paper on this passage. It's on my website, of course. It's on org. It's pretty popular. It, it's called The Problem with Genesis 4.1, and, and is an accompanying podcast, which, which I did um, about a year and a half ago. The, the paper was written, I don't know, Clifton might know better than me. It was probably written about 10 years ago. The... the um, the, the problem with, with Genesis 4, 1, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the, the problem with these verses is that phrase, sons of God. Adam is the son of God, and, and men here is Adam. So, so if the sons of Adam go into the daughters of Adam, there isn't a problem. The, the problem is that this doesn't necessarily um, refer to the sons of God. It does in the Masoretic text, I mean, I would admit that. But in the Septuagint, even though in, in the Vaticanist manuscripts of the Septuagint and some of the others, it does not, in the Alexandrinus it says the angels of God. And, and I don't necessarily trust the Alexandrian manuscripts. Quite often, they're horrible compared to the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus. However, and, and I'm not Brenton didn't have the Sinaiticus. I don't know. It, it, the Sinaiticus does have a large portion of the Septuagint. I've never investigated what the Sinaiticus says in this passage. I, I honestly never have. But it, if, in, if indeed the passage itself exists in that codex. However, the Vaticanus has sons of God, but the Alexandrinus has the angels of God. And, and that's, just, that, that's just one point, but that should be enough to make us look into that difference and the fact that Adam is the son of God in the New Testament should be enough to make us want to investigate this passage. And, and, and there are, um, in my paper, I list three sources for ancient texts, and I employ three sources for ancient texts from, from the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and from Charles's One Enoch and, and um, demonstrate that it's very plausible that this verse originally said, the sons of heaven. And, and even though a lot of the apocryphal literature, like the Genesis Apocryphon, and, and, which is a work, which, which is definitely a later work uh, of the Dead Sea cult, that the, um, the, the Genesis Apocryphon, the Qumran sect, that, that was their work, and, and some of the other commentaries are divided on whether this should say sons of heaven or sons of God. And some of the apocryphal literature does have sons of God. However, the better apocryphal literature, I believe, is the one Enoch, it is, I'm sorry, the Enoch literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Enoch literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is the sons of heaven. It's not the sons of God. So, so even though some of the literature is divided, 
if this is the sons of heaven and not the sons of God, then this has to be a reference to the fallen angels and, and, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and then that makes all the sense in the world, scripturally, through the lens of the New Testament. And, and there's no conflict. I've heard Comparé translate these mighty men of God. He referred to them as the ben Heha elohim Is that correct? No, no, because Ben-Elohim, ben they're the sons of God in, in later scripture, and there's no indication that they're angels. In, in fact, Christ, Christ himself in the New Testament, Yahshua Christ himself in the Gospel of John, takes the 82nd Psalm where it says Ben-Elohim and applies that to the children of Adam. So, so how does Compare get off applying it to fallen angels? If Yahshua Christ applies it to the children of Adam and, and the children of Israel in particular. And Deuteronomy 14.1, that Deuteronomy 14.1 would, would um, support that. What, where Yahweh says, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. And it's also mentioned in Isaiah that the children of Israel are the children of God. So, so if Compare is just wrong on that one, he can't apply, and, and Don Spears tried to pull that too when I had the discussion with him last year over the nature of what, whether Satan was in heaven or not, tried to call the Beni Elohim of the Psalms, Wait, he, he, tried to call, he tried to call them the, um, the fallen angels when Yahshua Christ took that Psalm and applied it to the children of Israel. You had to argue with somebody about Satan being in heaven or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, he's a Baptist, right? He, he's a he's a Christian identity Baptist. That's another story. I'm not even going to go there. The podcasts are on Christogenia. But but right. the the um the 82nd Psalm, Yahshua Christ applied to the children of Israel, not to fallen angels. And, and Deuteronomy 14:1, Yahweh says to the children of Israel, "Ye are the children of Yahweh your God." He didn't say. The fallen angels are the children of, of, of Yahweh God, and, and, and you're just Hebrew slaves. He didn't say that. So, so they're mis Compare, if Compare made that identification, he's wrong. Period. He's wrong. He, he, he's going against the words of Christ in the Gospel of John. Who applied that to the children of Israel in, in the context in which he uttered it, in, in which he quoted it. And it's very clearly applied to uh, applicable to the children of Israel and, and, and not to fallen angels. The, um, the Enoch literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and, and other literature, and it's, it's, I don't have the details in my head, they're in my paper. It's, um, it's clear that this should be amended to sons of heaven. I wouldn't trust... The, the Masoretic text or, or the Septuagint in this manner when it conflicts with the clear words of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. And it's the New Testament which is the lens through which, because there's so many conflicts amongst the manuscripts of, of the Old Testament, the New Testament and the, and the understanding of Christ and the apostles is the lens through which we must understand the Old Testament if you want to pretend to be Christians. If we want to use the rabbinical and, and Masoretic text interpretations of the Old Testament 
to correct the New Testament that they were not Christians, were Jews. What we're basically following the Jews and, and using the Jews to, to dispute with Christ and the apostles. And that's not the way to look at the Old Testament because, well, well chiefly because Jeremiah chapter 8 says, you think you had the law of the Lord, the, the law of the Lord, the scribes have, have turned it into a lie. The pen of the scribes is in vain. It, it's we need to understand the Old Testament through the lens of the New. I would amend this to the sons of heaven. And that's the, the argument that my paper at Christogenia makes, which is entitled The Problem with Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It amends the phrase sons of God to sons of heaven. Once we understand that these are the same fallen angels that seduced Eve, the serpent, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that then all of the problem here, all of the apparent conflict is cleared up. Once we amend this to sons of heaven, now we understand what is wrong with their mating with the daughters of men. It's that simple. Are you still with me? Oh, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> oh, Okay. Um, I, I don't know if you have any questions from that, if, if, if I should offer any quotes from, from my paper. Let, let me... Um... Well, when they say that these became mighty men which were of old, men of renown, who are these men of renown? Do you, I mean, offhand, you know maybe three or four names? Well, well yeah, Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is listed as one of the giants in, in the Book of Giants and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he's spoken about in, in Akkadian literature. I mean, the Greeks wrote about the war that Zeus had with the Titans. Uh, I, don't, I don't accept Gilgamesh as being canonical by any means. But what Gilgamesh does and, and what the Greek poets do, even though they're not canonical, they are very ancient. I mean, the Greek poets, Hesiod and Homer, go back to the times of Isaiah and Hosea, right? And, and what they do, and, and the, the Gilgamesh literature goes back before the time of Abraham, and, and what this does is it lends us insight into what pagan tales grew out of the accounts which are also represented in the Hebrew Bible. So basically if every culture in that area has some sort of legend or mythology that there were giants at some point in time. There might be something to the idea that there were giants at some point in time. Well, well absolutely. And, and let me read, you know, I'll, I'm going to read something from the um, from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And, and this is part of the flood story. And, and the, the equivalent to Noah in the Akkadian Epic of Gilgamesh, which definitely dates to at least the time of Abraham, and, and in the Sumerian versions, which are highly fragmented and very scarce, it, it's much older, right? The, the, the Akkadian Noah, his name is a little difficult, it's Utnapishtim, and I'm going to read some of the lines from Tablet 11 of, of the, the Akkadian Epic of Gilgamesh, which is actually the, the account of the Flood. And Utnapishtim said to him, to Gilgamesh, I will reveal to thee, Gilgamesh, a hidden matter, and a secret of the gods I will tell thee. Shurapak, a city which thou knowest, and which is on Euphrates' banks, is situate. That city was ancient, 
as it were, the gods within it. When their heart led the great gods to produce the flood, there were Anu, their father, Valiant Enlil, this is the whole Akkadian pantheon, right? That their counselor, Ninurtu, their assistant, Enuge, their irrigator, Minigiku Ya was also present with them. Their words he repeats to the reed hut. Reed hut, reed hut, wall, wall, reed hut, hearken, wall, reflect. I, I, I don't really get all of this, right? I'm, I'm not even sure it's translated that well, but we could get the, the gist of the story from it. And man of, man of Shorupak, meaning Utnapishtim, right? That, that's an epithet for Utnapishtim. Son of Ubar Tutu, tear down this house and build a ship. Give up possession, seek your life, forswear worldly goods and keep your soul alive. Aboard the ship, take thou the seed of all living things. The ship that thou builds, her dimension shall be the measure, equal shall be her width and her length, like the Apsu that shall seal her. And the Apsu is a reference to the subterranean waters, right, to aquifers. And, and there's proof of that in other legends, right? And Utnapishtim is basically being told to build a boat out of the wood that makes his own house, to, to take it apart and build a boat out of it, and take upon that boat the seed of all living creatures. And, and basically because his little world, his land, is going to be destroyed in a flood. And after the flood, and, and there's a rivalry, in the, the Akkadian version, there's a rivalry between two gods. And after the flood, the, the, um, the goddess Enlil is upset to, I, I think it's a goddess Enlil, I, I believe it's a female character, I might be corrected on that, is upset that um, the Igigi Igigi gods, and you see that j double G in there, like we see in Agog, and a lot of the words that have to do with giants, and we'll see that in Greek mythology also, that the Agigi gods are destroyed in the flood. And, and, and that, that's the Akkadian flood myth, and, and Gilgamesh is one of the giants, and Gilgamesh was birthed from heaven, and Enkidu was one of the giants, and that this Akkadian goddess came down and created Enkidu out of her own seed on the earth, and, and it doesn't go into details about how, and, and I actually um, cite Gilgamesh in several of my papers because the literature is very important to understanding a lot of Hebrew idioms, especially in Genesis chapter 3 and, and, and elsewhere, and it gives us insight into certain Hebrew idioms that are used in connection with these things. And, and it shows us that now Gilgamesh is not canonical, don't get me wrong, but the Akkadians are Assyrians. Akkadian is their language. The Assyrians, they're children of Shem, just like the Hebrews are children of Shem. And they have all these similar myths that we see in, in the early chapters of Genesis. And they have these similar myths, and, and they're paganized, and they're extrapolated, they're expounded on, and, and they have them because they're simply a different branch of the same race. If they didn't have similar myths, that, then I'd be worried about the Hebrew Bible. 
If they didn't have similar myths, I'd wonder, well, well, what are all these people, how are these people related if they didn't have similar myths? You know, in Hesiod's Theogony, which is a pretty famous poem, from line 176, it's described that giants sprang from the blood of heaven. Fragments of the ancient Greek epic cycle. The epic cycle dates to before the end of the 7th century BC, to before the time of, of um, Hosea and Amos. And it talks about an unknown author of a work called The War of the Giants. Another famous work which is lost to us today is The War of the Titans. And that's referenced in, in the fragments, the surviving fragments of the epic cycle. The word Titan, it, it, the word Titan does not mean giant. It does in English, I understand that. In, in Greek, it comes from a word which means one who strives, or even one who strains. And, and um, th there are other possible etymologies. That one's the most, the most likely one. The Titans, in, in Greek mythology, were, defe were defeated by Zeus. And they were banished to Tartarus. Tartarus is the original name for what we later know in Greek writings, what later became Hades, right? In the earliest Greek myths, Tartarus was the place and Hades was the god of the underworld. Eventually, the name Hades became synonymous with the place and the word Tartarus fell into disuse. But Peter in his epistle uses a verb, Tartarizo. Tartarizo literally means to cast someone into Tartarus, and, and he uses that in connection with the fallen angels. The earliest Greek myths had a myth of a, of a titan named Ogigas, and then we see that double G word again, right? And, and we see that so often in, in scripture and, and in related languages in, in the Mediterranean world in connection with giants. Ogigas was said to be an ancient king of Boeotia in Greek mythology. And, and that's it, it's uh, I'm laughing because it sounds incredible to me, but but that that's a tale that's actually often compared to the account of Og of Bashan, and and, and we'll 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 see Og of Bashan mentioned in later scriptures, and he's one of the giants, and, and we also see the names of, of um very similar names in the Akkadian epics, such as the name of the Igigi gods, so. so in, in the Sumerian and the Akkadian myths, Gilgamesh and, and his rival-turned-companion Enkidu, they were both giants said to be created by the gods. And, and there are other giants mentioned in, in the mythology. It, it's These two are simply the most accessible. And, and um, Gilgamesh is mentioned twice in Surviving Dead Sea Scrolls. So, so, so th this... That these myths are, are definitely a part of the mythology of the much wider world, both Greeks and, and Assyrians. But Greeks and Assyrians are, are both related to the, the, the Greeks, for the most, well, well, to a great extent, were the children of Israel. They came from the children of Israel if they weren't Ionians, in, in which case they were Japethites and they were still related. But, but the Assyrians were, were um, fellow Shemites. They had to have similar myths. So, so I, I would, um, due to the 
apparent conflict in Genesis chapter 6, and because other early literature tells us differently and, and supports the fact that the, the Masoretic text probably should say sons of heaven and not sons of God, I would not hesitate at all to resolve the conflict by emending the phrase sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 and 4 to sons of heaven. And, and now we understand why there's a problem with the sons of heaven taking the daughters of men. I, I mean, it's the Eve story all over again, as far as I'm concerned, on a greater scale. Well, we're seeing that today. There are millions of Eves today. Well, well right. And, and the fallen angels who were bound in chains of darkness uh, are violating the sons of, of Adam again. There's no doubt. On, on a much grander scale. So, so all we need is a flood. Let, let's talk about canonical giants. Deuteronomy 3.10. Let, let me quote that. All the cities of the plain, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, unto Salcha and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og of Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits, in other words, the, the writer of, of Deuteronomy is saying that the bed is still there. Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it, after the cubit of a man. And this is the land which we possessed at that time, from a roar, which is the river Arnon, and half Mount Gilead, and the cities thereof I gave unto the Reubenites and to the Gadites, and the rest of Gilead, and all Bashan, being the kingdom of Og, I gave unto half the tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob, with all Bashan, which was called the land of the giants. Now, now Gilgamesh in Akkadian literature was actually the king of Iraq, and 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 he he, he was a um. They, they considered him to be a great man, right? Even though he was a harsh king. Where, of course, the Hebrew Bible, from, from our Christian perspective, he would be considered an evil bastard. The Rephaim. Yes. The, the Rephaim. Uh, oh, by the way, nine cubits is um, the bed of our... It's not the person, right? It's the measure of the bed. But nine cubits is nevertheless 13 and a half feet, if it's the standard cubit. And if it's the royal cubit, which is equivalent to about 21 inches, it's 15 feet and 9 inches. Genesis chapter 15, from verse 18. In the same day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. From the river of Egypt, under the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. And of these people, these ten nations of the land of Canaan, here in Genesis chapter 15, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Gergesites, as well as the Canaanites, can be connected to Canaan himself in Genesis chapter 10, right? 
However, the Canites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim have no original biblical connection to Canaan or to Noah. They are not listed as having descended from Noah. So where did they come from, right? Now it is possible, but only because nearly all Hebrew names have some sort of meaning, that the words Kenizzites, Cabanites, and Perizzites may, in other contexts, refer to hunters, Easterners, and villagers. And in that manner, Kenites may refer to smiths. However, in this context, that is nonsense, since all these are clearly references to tribes of Canaan and not to geographical locations and occupations. If that were so, that would also exclude people of certain other occupations or locations within the land of Canaan, as if they were to be left alone and, and Abraham wouldn't have their land, right? So, so such an interpretation is ridiculous and it, it does not explain the existence of the Rephaim. So, so these are tribal names. They're not occupations and locations, as, as some biblical commentators would, would like you to believe. In truth, the Kenites are the descendants of Cain. Yahshua Christ helps us to verify that in Luke chapter 11 and in John chapter 8. And the Kenizzites, Cabanites, and Perizzites are all tribes with no known genealogy from Noah or from Adam. Where did they come from? We have seen the Kenites listed in Genesis chapter 4. The Kenizzites and Cabanites are no longer mentioned after Genesis 15. However, they may have either simply amalgamated themselves into the other nations of Canaan, or, like the Kenites, they may have simply moved on to other lands for the time being, during the invasions and, and, and the destruction of the land of Canaan at at, at the hand of Joshua and the Israelites. The next time the Perizzites are mentioned several other times in company with the other nations of Canaan in Genesis and in Exodus, and they are listed among those tribes which were commanded to be utterly destroyed by Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Kenites and the Rephaim are still present in the land, but they're found elsewhere also. The Kenites are later mentioned as dwelling amongst the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. So they did kind of move, or at least it seems that they did, or, or they, that they were in many places anyway, spread out over, over the entire region, which is also very likely the case. They're mentioned as dwelling amongst the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, and in 1 Samuel chapter 30, they have the Kenites have cities of their own. And they're mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 as having become scribes in Israel. Imagine that. They were the lawyers in, in the tribe of Judah. They were spoken against by Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. The Rephaim, the Rephaim of Genesis 15, they are the remnant of the giants, at least in part. The word Rapha in Hebrew means giant. Strong's number 7497. Rephaim is plural. It means giants. I don't know why the King James translators didn't just translate it, but they didn't. From my paper, The Race of Genesis 10, which is available on Christogenia, I said Goliath was not actually a Philistine, but rather he was a mercenary in their army. He was one of the sons of Rapha, the Canaanite giant, for which see 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. 
where in the King James Version where it says the giant, in Hebrew the word is Ha-Rapha, and Ha-Rapha, the giant, is the source of the Rephaim. Rephaim is plural for Rapha. Genesis chapter 14, verse 5, chapter 15, verse 20, 2 Samuel 5.18, 2 Samuel 5.22, 2 Samuel 23.13. Ha Rapha, or the giants, are mentioned in every one of those verses. Well, would you like to read 1 Chronicles chapter 20 from verse 1? I actually don't have 1 Chronicles in front of me. It's in my notes. You don't have it in front of you. Oh, 1 Chronicles 20? From the bottom of All page right. 3. And it came to pass that after the year was expired, at the time that kings go out to battle, Joab led forth the power of the army and wasted the country of the children of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried at Jerusalem. Now, now this is my note in here, right? <laughs> I didn't want you reading it like it was part of one chronicle. <laughs> it's part of the scripture. This is the time of his diddling with the wife of Uriah the Hittite. <laughs> Well, well, it is that David tarried at Jerusalem because he was diddling with the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and that's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, right? And Joab smote Rabbah and destroyed it. And David took the crown of their king from off his head and found it to weigh a talent of gold, and there were precious stones in it, and it was set upon David's head, and he brought also exceeding much spoil out of the city. And he brought out the people that were in it, and cut them with saws and with arrows of iron and with axes. Even so dealt David with all the cities of the children of Ammon. And David and all the people returned to Jerusalem, and it came to pass after this that there arose war at Gezer with the Philistines, at which time Sibachai the Hushathite slew Sapai, that was of the children of the giant, and they were subdued. And there was war again with the Philistines in Elhanan, the son of Jair, slew Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, whose spear staff was like a weaver's beam, and yet again there was war at Gath, where a man of great stature, whose fingers and toes were four and twenty, six on each hand and six on each foot, and he also was the son of the giant. But when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, slew him. These were born unto these were born unto the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. <clears throat> yeah, you know, the the later Aramaic targum called Pseudo Jonathan contains the ridiculous story that Og of Bashan survived the flood by hiding himself on the roof of Noah's Ark. But, <laughs> And I read it. I read it ten years ago. It, it, it's bad. It, it really is. Hiding himself on the roof of Noah's Ark. That, that's how at least one of the Aramaic Targums um, tried to explain the existence of Aga Bashan because he knew that he, he couldn't have come from from the, um, the the families of Noah in Genesis chapter ten. Yep. Pardon me, but that sounds like something from a comic book. Well, well it is something from a comic book. It, it's no worse than the damned, the, the, the Judeo-Christian interpretations of the flood today. But the existence of all these giants after the flood, I, I don't care about all the sophistic arguments about the flood. The existence of the Kenites 
and the Rephaim and these other tribes with no connection to Noah in Genesis chapter 10, the existence and, and listing of these people in Genesis chapter 15, that alone proves that the flood was not global. That alone demonstrates the flood was not global. That there is no way that Yahweh, that the flood didn't come, as we will see in, in the subsequent verses here, the flood did not come to destroy the enemies of God. The flood came to destroy the wickedness of those Adamic men who were corrupted and accepting of the mixing of their daughters with the sons of heaven. Right, well, what does it say that God repented that he had made man, and he said, I will destroy man whom I have created. Well, well right. He didn't say, I will destroy beasts whom the fallen angels have created. Well, well right. And, and, and th th you're not going to tell me that, that Noah, being perfect in his generations, and his sons are going to be exposed to the children of Cain and, and the Rephaim giants on the ark so that they could be preserved. That, that's... <laughs> That that's absolutely ludicrous. The flood, the, the flood was not global, and the only thing we need to prove that the flood was not global is Genesis chapter 15. Well, you know, the evangelicals, they teach that it was a global flood, and I've heard them say that Noah had all the DNA for all the races in him, and that Noah's sons were all of different races, and that's how they repopulated the whole planet. Well, well you know, I heard some clown, so, some clown on, on Facebook had, had these great secrets, and, and he, he's kind of like that other clown that thinks he has truth from God. That There's this clown on Facebook that, that thinks he has these great secrets, that, that Noah came on a UFO and brought the DNA for, for every animal from another planet, right? I, I mean, there's all kinds of clowns out there passing themselves off as, as well, well as, as Bible experts and, and as um, Christian identity teachers and, and all kinds of garbage. But yeah, Noah came from a, he, he landed here from a UFO and, and brought the DNA of every creature with him. Well, I'm worried that um, this Aga Basham must be able to survive in the vacuum of space if he was hiding on the outer hall of the UFO. Well, well right. Or, or he was on the roof of the ark. I mean, all these Rephaim and, and the Kenites, they must have been great great swimmers. Right, and wouldn't that tend to put a lot of strain on the roof of the ark? I mean, if someone's 10 feet tall, they must weigh, you know, <laughs> half a ton, right? That gopher wood's pretty strong. Now, now, I, don't, I don't know. It's ridiculous. It's childish. The, the flood was not global in scope. It was local in scope. It, it destroyed the children of Adam who, who were accepting of this sin with the fallen angels, with, with the sons of heaven, who, who were mixing, who were wicked, and, and only Noah was found righteous amongst all of them, and only Noah was found to be perfect in his generations. Well, that must be spiritual generations. It means he was perfect in his conduct. Well, well right, and, and, and we'll talk about that shortly. I, I, I don't know if I've said everything I want to in, in, in these previous chapters. That There, there are some other things that, that, that I had marked off here to read, and, and I, I don't even think that it's pertinent anymore, so that's fine. Maybe we'll read them one other day during this, um, during this presentation. I have some chapters from Hesiod marked off here, but it's it's not. I already made reference to the sons of heaven, that the um, the titans coming from the blood of heaven and and um, in Hesiod's Theogony. That's the the biggest point I wanted to make there.
So, so we have giants, and, and we have giants all the way down to the time of David. And, and those giants are, are, are leftovers. The Rephaim are, are giants are, are leftovers from, from this Genesis chapter 6 event. That is, that ostensibly, there's no other origin for them, that they're part of that seed of the serpent, that they're one of the um, genetic mutations that the fallen angels cause by mixing their seed with every kind, Adamic kind being one of those kinds. It, it's um, that, That's the only explanation for their origin. And they survived the flood because the flood was only local in scope. A lot, and, and they survived the flood as well as the children of Cain surviving the flood, the, the Kenites. Wow, you know, according to the Targum of Pseudo-Jonathan, Moses was also, they claim that Moses was of the Rephaim and that Moses was 14.7 feet tall. Yeah, Pseudo-Jonathan is probably the worst of the Targums. And, and it's I I think I think the earliest that one dates to is is probably the second century A.D. If if I have that right, it's been a while. Right. So the Targum of Pseudo Jonathan is basically just rabbinical garbage. The Targums aren't, uh, yeah, you know, they're not perfect, and, and some of them are a lot less perfect than others. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is with a lot of apocryphal literature. Yet you'll read a lot of things that make sense in the book of Jasher, and, and then you get to the end and you find it, um, well, well, first in the middle, I mean, the patriarchs, the, the sons of Jacob can jump 30-foot walls like they're, they're Superman, like they're Superman, and the, or Spider-Man, or whatever. So some kind of Marvel comic hero. But the um, maybe they wore tights too. But the um, the later chapters of the Book of Jasher have the the Exodus happening at the same time as Caesar's invasion of Britain. So so that's that. There's problems with a lot of the apocryphal literature. That's why it's apocryphal literature. Now, now some apocryphal literature is certainly valid. It, it's not all bad, but it, it's a lot of it's apocryphal for good reason. We already gave the reason for the flood. I'm, I'm going to read Genesis 6-5 again. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented, Yahweh, that he had made man on the earth. And, and that word is Adam. And it grieved him at his heart. And Yahweh said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the house of the effort, repenting that I have made them. And, and, and you know, we see in the Enoch literature that the, the, the fallen angels were also mixing their seed with the seed of beasts, and, and there must be a reason why the beasts have to be destroyed as well as the men. Just like later on in, in, um, in a lot of the cities of Canaan, that there was probably good reason that the beasts had to be destroyed as well as men if the beasts were, were no longer acceptable to God, if they were bastardized, if they were mongrelized, if their kind was violated, that they too would be um, what would need to be destroyed. It's not only human bastards that God despises, it's animal bastards as well. It's clear that the flood came to destroy 
the men the, the, of the Adamic race who accepted this sin and, and not merely the enemies of God. And that's a common mistake. I've heard even in Christian identity circles that um, that the flood came to destroy the evil and the giants, and, and that's not true. The, 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 the Kenites and, and the Rephaim lived through the flood. They all did. Well, well, I don't know if they all did, but a significant enough number of them lived through the flood to cause the children of Israel a lot of trouble unto this very day because they're still here. I'm going to read one um, short passage from Hesiod, from Works and Days. The Greek literature suggests an ancient belief in earthbound angels, or watchers, as they're called. And they're called watchers also in the book of Daniel, and in certain other apocryphal literature. They're called watchers in some of the Enoch literature. The term watchers appears of certain angels. And this is from Hesiod's Works and Days, lines 252 to 255, and I quote, For upon the bounteous earth, Zeus has thrice ten thousand spirits, watchers of mortal man, and these keep watch on judgments and deeds of wrong as they roam, clothed in mist all over the earth. And I'm not going to assert that's canonical. However, I'm certain that that Greek myth, that Greek fable or tale or whatever you want to call it, certainly came from ideas which were carried from Hebrew scripture. Like so many more similar Greek myths. Do you have any comment? Well, just looking at the English and Genesis 6, it says, God saw the wickedness of man, and it repented Yahweh that he had made man. So clearly, he's talking about the men he has created. He even explicitly says, I will destroy man whom I have created. He's not saying, I will destroy the serpent seed that the serpent has created. Well, well, right. Judgment starts at the house of God, and, and, and his enemies, as the apostles explained, are bound in chains of darkness for the judgment of the great day of the last day, but in the meantime, the children of God are, are, are judged and punished time and time again, all, all the way through history, for accepting the evil of God's enemies. And, and that's our biggest offense, and, and that's how it started in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve believed the serpent's lie. That, that's, um, oh, don't worry, you won't die, you, you could do this. Just, I, I don't know, I don't want to get vulgar, but, but um, it, it's pretty obvious that Eve was tricked into believing the serpent's lie and accepting the person of, of the serpent. Every time we accept that, the enemies of our God, what we end up all the worse off for it. We end up suffering the, 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 the punishments that, which are bound to um, come upon us when, when we deal with these people. That, that's why, that, that's the meaning of the 82nd Psalm. God stands in the congregation of, of the gods, uh, of the mighty. He judges among the gods that this came true when Christ stood in Jerusalem 
and, and spoke to his people and said, how long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? And then he urges them to do what? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. This was fulfilled in the ministry of of, of Yahshua Christ. There's no doubt. The ungodly are all those people opposed to God. We should not accept their persons. The 82nd, 82nd Psalm admonishes us not to accept the persons of the wicked. Well, we should only accept the persons of, of, of our, our fellow Adamic man, period. That's the meaning to the psalm. But Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. Well, if you're an evangelical, why do Noah's generations matter? Isn't it just his conduct? Is he a good person? And does he follow God? Well, well absolutely. Now, if you look at, at Strong's Concordance... I'm not saying Strong's Concordance is right. I'm sorry I don't have good Hebrew manuscripts. I never really cared for Hebrew. I really don't. I have a little Hebrew vocabulary, and I can read the alphabet, right? That's about it. But the um, If you have a Strong's Concordance, both of these words come from the Hebrew word toleda, which means descent. If you use BibleWorks software, and, and I examine the Hebrew there, the first word comes, the, the first word, the first occurrence of generations comes from Toledah, which means descent. And, and the second occurrence of the word generations comes from the Hebrew word door, but which means to, to abide. It means a revolution of time, right? And, and really makes no sense in that respect except that that word is also often translated generations as cycles of, of man. The, the, um, the word door, the Hebrew word door, not related to the city, the Hebrew word door is, um, directly at least, is, I believe, the, the actual root of the Latin word durare and, and English words like duration and endure to last, right? But if you look at the Septuagint, both of these words were translated in, in the sense of tolada, because the first word in the Septuagint was translated with the, with the Greek word genesis, or genesis, right? And the second occurrence of generations was translated with the, the, the Greek word genea, which is race. Noah was perfect. He was a just man, and he was perfect in his race, in the Septuagint. That's how they understood it, and I don't know if Strong's is correct or if Bible Works is correct, but that's how I would understand it, and I would rather follow Strong in this instance, only because that's the way the Septuagint translators understood it. So, so Noah was a man perfect in his race. He was a man perfect in his descent, this is the race that these are the the, the um 
this is the descent of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his race is, is how the Greek would read here. If just going by those two words, genesis and, and genea. And Noah walked with God. Now, now to imagine that Yahweh God would bring the flood down on man to punish him for mixing with the so-called sons of heaven and, and then permit the, the descendants of Cain and the giants... Who, who resulted from illicit unions onto the ark, that, that's preposterous, that idea. The flood is a local flood. And, and the Bible is all the proof we need of that. I, I don't, yeah, you know, everything you want to argue about ecology and, and, and natural sciences, that, that's all sophistry. The Bible proves that the flood is a local flood, right in Genesis chapter 15. Are you with me? Yes, I'm here. Well, I have nothing to argue. I'm not going to argue it was a global flood. Oh, okay. I, I just grunt or something. <laughs> well, what, what, would you um, care to explain why do the evangelicals need a global flood? Well, well, because then all the races of the world came from nowhere and we're all the same and it doesn't race doesn't matter anymore. And, and, and you could go and swap spit with niggers in the shower and everything's cool. That's why they need a global flood, because we all came from Noah, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's contrary to all the laws of God. It's contrary to um, to all possibility. It, it, it's a very childish look at the world. It's the way the Catholic popes of, of the medieval period wanted to look at the world so that they could assert their authority over all the people of the world. It's the way the Jesuits wanted to look at the Bible. And, and the Jesuits wanted to look at the Bible like that so that they could that, that, so that they could exploit all the people of the world and use the Bible to do it. And, and today it's the way the universalists want to look at the world, and it's certainly the way the Jews want to look at the world, that because they could use the Bible to destroy our race while keeping themselves as a privileged class distinct from all the people of the world. So, so that, that's... It's all about the destruction of the Adamic race all over again. That's what universalism is. It's it's the it's the lie of the serpent. You could eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You won't die. But, well, that's what we're doing right now through multiculturalism and diversity. We are, on a grand scale, once again, eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every time you see a white woman with a Negro... There you have it. It, it, or an Asian, or, or a Jew, or, or an Arab. It, it's the same story all over again. And white men, too. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence, and God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And, and of course, at every occurrence of earth here, the word is erets, and the same word was translated as land over a thousand times in the King James Bible. It doesn't necessarily refer to the globe, and, and that's ridiculous. It's talking about the whole land. It's talking about, in the biblical scope, 
it's talking about the Adamic world or Oikumene, the, the land that the Adamic race inhabited at this time. And the phrase all flesh refers to the, the children of Adam with the spirits of God. And, and, and all flesh destroyed in, in that land excepting, of course, Noah and, and what, whatever Noah is instructed to save, right? To preserve. Right, so according to the evangelicals, though, it's two of every type of animal from all across the world, so Noah had to sail all over, Argentina, South Africa, India, China, Australia, New Zealand, America, so he had to have the ark ready before the flood came. But that's not written, is it? It says that he finished the ark, entered into it, and then the waters came. Well, well, it's the the evangelical angle on on the whole flood is absolutely ludicrous. Let let me say, and and I'm not trying to support the evangelical position. What where it says in verse three, and Yahweh said, "My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years." That that has nothing to do with the lifespan of man. That has everything to do with how long Noah had to build the ark. It, it has everything to do with Yahweh's decision to destroy man, and, and when it actually happened, the, the interim period was 120 years. That's what this verse is saying. But, but that still doesn't tell us that all of the little animals in the world um, made their way to Palestine to get on it. Well, right. Which is absolutely ridiculous. That's that's about that's almost as funny as the idea that Og of Bashan hit himself on the roof. Well, well, right, and and that's ludicrous. But that shows you the extent that that people would go to to explain why Og of Bashan was there, or or why these other giants or these other people were there, and 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 it's. It's ludicrous, but but it's no worse than than many of the Catholic or evangelical arguments made about the flood today. It's no worse. Okay, we're going to end this presentation here, and and, and we'll be back in. Uh, I think next week we're, we're we're going to change and do something else. I, I don't know if you're going to select something for us. I'm going to be away in New York all next week. I'm going to be visiting family. Um, next Friday, you're filling in with, with Mike Delaney, right? ProSync.org? That, that is the plan, yes. And, it looks and, like we'll be discussing 9-11 and conspiracies. Okay, that's next Friday's program, Sword Brethren and Mike Delaney of ProSync.org and, and 911missinglinks.com to talk about 9-11 conspiracies. And, and next Saturday, we're going to do something different. The program content will be announced, but we're going to take a one-week break from this Genesis series and, and come back next week with Genesis chapters 10 and 15. And, and, and from there, we're going to move on to the story of Jacob and Esau. Uh, I have um, plans to do a couple of segments here, one on the, the, the beast of the field and the other races in the Old Testament that will be done before this series is over, and, and another one tracing the descendants of Cain and the, and, 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 and the seed of the serpent through... But because Christ 
blames people in the New Testament in Luke chapter 11 for the blood of Abel. He puts that on, on a certain race of people he is talking to. We have to see how the descendants of Cain, because only the descendants of Cain could be guilty for the blood of Abel, how they got through the Old Testament. And, and it's the, the steps aren't hard. It's only four or five steps. But, but we see very clearly in Scripture that what we go from the Kenites blending themselves with the Canaanites and, and race mixing with them and, and the Canaanites in turn with the Edomites and, and the Edomites into the New Testament. It's, it's only a couple of hops and a jump. And it's pretty simple. The descendants of Cain were very well in, in um, Jerusalem in large numbers at the time of Christ because all of the Edomites mixed themselves with, with, with the blood of Cain when Esau took a Canaanite wife through the Canaanites, through Genesis chapter 15. So, so we'll trace that and, and, and discuss them, and, and we'll discuss the other races in the Old Testament. But Because wherever you see the other races in the Old Testament, they're, they're devils and beasts. And, and they, they sure as hell aren't people by the time you get to the New Testament. The, the descendants of Cain might be Jews, but the other races sure as hell aren't people if they start out as, as, as devils and, and beasts and the enemies of God. That's very clear in the books of the prophets. So if they're devils and beasts, then they become men, then they become nations. Well, well, right. If you're a Jew from Chicago, you might believe that, but that that's not Christianity. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and, and good night. Uh, I'll be here next Praise Saturday God. with Sword Brethren, and the program material will be announced. I, I'll be... Um, I'll make I'll have some of the technical lens next Friday for for the Mike Delaney Sword Brethren program to to do, but I, I won't be here. I'll be in New York. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. Good night. Good night.